Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This program is made possible because of Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, the Griffin Foundation, and the Hereditary Disease Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today I have a recording for you. Um, it is a webinar that um, I co-hosted with Erica of HD Reach. Um, and it is titled, When Life Gets Messy. Um, Erica and I sat down with an attorney, Jeff Marsaki, and um, we, t- we went into many things. Um, we talked about divorce, disability, and just so much more. And I feel like this is such a great resource that I just wanted to share it on the podcast as well. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this webinar. Um, and if you would like to see the other webinars that Erica and I have been co-hosting together, um, you can actually visit the HD Reach website, um, and I have made sure to include that link on our show page and in our social media. So please make sure to check that out, and love you guys. Hope you enjoy this. Hey everyone, my name is Erica Bolofsky. I am the Community Outreach Specialist with HD Reach, and I am here with my co-host, Lauren Holder with Help for HD. And we are here with Jeffrey Marsacci, the plain English attorney, which I just, I love that name. I think it's it's perfect. Well, thank you. You want to tell our viewers a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, my name is Jeff Marsacci. I am the plain English attorney. I've got a YouTube channel. You know, a lot of attorneys, they really just kind of focus on the law. Part of what I do, which I think makes me a little bit different, is I focus an awful lot on education and helping my clients understand things that are going on. And if I have to tell the story of how I got into this, it goes all the way back to when I was nine years old. My mom passed on from cancer, and that's when my father's parents, my grandmother and grandfather, they just moved in, helped raise me and my sister. There was just no question. And so I, we got through high school, and I went away, did undergrad. And then that summer between undergrad and law school, my grandfather ended up passing on, also of cancer. Only about a week and a half before I was supposed to shove everything into the car and drive off to law school. And my grandmother, you know, it it hit her hard. It did. And immediately she knew that there were some things going wrong with the estate because there were all of these, you know, questions. And she's like, wait a minute, what's going on? 
being a proud grandmother with a, with a grandson in law school, she's like, I can call up my grandson. And of course, with everything she did, she earned the right. So she gave me one day for orientation and then started calling up and asking questions. Uh, if you ask, yeah, if you ask any question of any first year law student, you're very likely to get the exact same answer, no matter what the question is. And that's, I don't know, let me look it up in the law library. So she kept calling me. And the reason she was calling me is every time she talked to the attorney, she would get an answer she didn't understand in a bill that she didn't want to pay. So I was trying to help her understand. It's a year and a half later, and I find that the questions are still coming. I'm like, wait a minute, this is still going on? It can't have to be like this when someone passes on. There's got to be a way to plan ahead to avoid all this. And I finally went to the head librarian at the law school, and he said, I know exactly the book you need. We don't have it. And he sent me over to the mall bookstore to pick it up. And it was this book called The Living Trust by... Henry W. Apps III, and it started laying out here is a different and better way than having everything go into probate court. And I think that really is what sparked the fire in me to help clients avoid messes by planning ahead of time. That became my focus rather than, okay, let's help people clean up messes and charge an awful lot of money to do it. So that's how I got into what I'm doing. And now that, that branched into also Medicaid planner. I'm a certified Medicaid planner as well. So I can really help the family save a lot of money while still qualifying their loved one for those benefits if that's what they need. Yeah. I know we were talking a little bit before about how complex Huntington's disease or just a, a, a longer yeah. term illness, um, how how you know, planning is, is, is really important to do. And it's really important to be able to look at a lot of these questions that we go through this conversation that we have um, to really consider and think about, like, is this something that I really need to go ahead and get started on mm -hmm. while also acknowledging if you are in the middle of a mess, there are still people that can help guide you and help kind of make that mess a little less messy. Yes. Definitely. Um, I'm Lisa, I'm so excited that you you're here today because this is the when life gets messy. This is kind of our intent with this with this specific webinar. We want mm -hmm. um, to talk about prevention and talk about planning and talk about different things that people who have the time to set up um, for their futures in different ways. How can they do that? Um, but also when they're in the midst of the mess, when they're making decisions and they're having to make real um, important decisions financially regarding Medicaid, um, what that can look like. If you can, like I know you said that you're you're an estate and um, Medicaid uh, kind of focused attorney. What is that? You know, how is that different from like a family planning attorney or a family law, a disability attorney? Like, I feel like there's a million different attorneys. Well, yeah, there are. <laughs> and it's it's an awful lot like medicine uh, these days in that, th I don't want to say specialized, there's actually a process for specializing attorneys and whatnot, but people focus on what they're focused on because the rules get to be really, really complex. In fact, uh, even with estate planning and probate attorneys, probate attorneys end up handling 
estates that go through the court system. And that's kind of what happens if you do a will as opposed to a trust to avoid it. Most of them don't want to touch Medicaid planning because it's a whole other level of rules and exceptions and loopholes and gotcha things that can really devastate it. And it's like, unless they want to devote a lot of time to be in there, they don't want to take that stuff on and they don't want to take the responsibility on it. When you're talking about family law, all right, family law is generally a big portion of it ends up being divorce, but it's also adoptions, child custody. If someone is becoming incapacitated or incompetent legally and they need a guardian, oftentimes it's a it's under the family law umbrella, they will help get guardianship. And some of that ventures a little bit over to the estate side, because if you get financial guardianship over someone through the court, you have to report to the court and fill out accounting forms and things like that. Again, a lot of that, I like to try to help my clients avoid it, if at all possible. And so this is just a, I guess it's a, a tidbit and it's a little more generally applicable. It's around this time of year for a lot of my clients just if their kids are turning 18 and they're heading off to college and the college is requesting their medical records, they go to the pediatrician that they've been going to for the last 18 years and request the medical records. And suddenly the parents are like, well, I'm sorry, we can't give it to you. What are you talking about? It's my kid. I've, you know, I've been bringing them here for 18. Yeah, but they're 18 now. They're an adult. So the parents aren't automatically going to be able to do a lot of things that they were automatically able to do just six months ago when they were still 17. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who's a legal adult, having a, I call it a financial power of attorney. There's a durable general power of attorney springing. Basically it's anything financial and legal, have a power of attorney and also a healthcare power of attorney. And sometimes, okay, if you want, then there's also that living will, which is all right. If I get on life support, what's that final decision? So even if you have next to nothing in terms of assets, you, you know, well, it's not like I have dependents and I need to do all this other type of planning, at the very least have those two powers of attorney so it doesn't become a mess. I remember, it's gotta be going back about three years ago now, uh, some high school senior was doing something stupid. They were standing on top of a car and like, surfing on top of the car you know what i'm talking about and they fell off and hit their head and the parents were divorced and the father was overseas and they couldn't get a hold of him and the mom's like look i know that he wouldn't want to be on life support and the doctors were like no because he's 18 he couldn't assign somebody as the power of attorney we need both parents to agree or we're not gonna do anything. So it's there can be crises like that. But on the financial end, I have a ton of my clients whose parents just wanna help them out with banking stuff while they're away. So having those two documents becomes important. It becomes all that more critical if say you're a young adult and HD runs in the family or you actually get diagnosed that's at a bare minimum, the documents you want to have in place so the people that you're choosing are taking over 
rather than there either being a fight or just quote going to the next of kin whom you may not want to be the person in charge i think that is incredibly important to to state where you know there's there's natural um next of kin there's a there's a hierarchy and you mm-hmm. may be going through a couple of those hierarchies before it's actually the person that you actually want who you've had these conversations with and talked about your health it may yeah. not be you know your your spouse might be very emotionally invested and there might be a friend that has been that sounding board that you've talked mm-hmm. to so having that healthcare power of attorney puts that healthcare when you're not able to make decisions yourself um right. it puts that into the, the the hands of that person that trusted person um yeah and that's always the better alternative if you are making the choice yourself for the people you want in charge. Uh, I have a lot of clients who are parents of children with special needs and they're adults. And okay, well, they can work, but they can only work so long because they have a disability and Medicaid. And so there's only so many hours and really it's there's only so much pay that they can have in their checking account at the end of whatever that month is, but they can kind of make these decisions on their own and they go, oh, well, I went to the bank. They wouldn't let me help my child. And they said to go get guardianship. Oh, wait a minute. The second there's guardianship involved, that could mean having to go and report to the court each year. Well, the test for seeing if someone can execute their own legal documents, do they know who they are? Do they know who they're the natural heirs of their bounty, if they've got kids or not, and you know when were they born and whatnot. And basically, what do they have and where would they want it to go? They have something called testamentary capacity, which really that's the test. Okay, you can have that power of attorney, you can create a will, you can create a plan. Well, if they have that and they can voluntarily pick those people out and you can use the power of attorney at the bank, why would you go through a court process? So it's these alternatives of planning ahead that can be much more efficient and certainly a lot less frustrating than having to go to a court to do it. But I see so many people just jump to, oh, I was told to go get guardianship, so that's what I did. I, I think and, that this is a little bit of a harder thing. And, and the reason I say this is um, because I've been through this process. Um, I think you make a very great point that if you are being proactive and you go ahead and get those documents taken care of ahead of time, it mm-hmm. saves you a lot of heartache and everything when you're faced with a situation versus when you're in a situation and because of cognitive problems and and the behavioral issues um, Mm -hmm. along with those cognitive issues that we deal with with HD, you all of a sudden have to look at guardianship because there's no other choice. And so, um, you know, it's heartbreaking to have to do that, but um, sometimes that is necessary, but you're right. I think if mm-hmm. if we're pro- proactive, we go ahead and get the power of attorney in place, then that doesn't become an issue. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I do want people to realize too, like if you're in the midst of somebody who is dealing with the behavioral and cognitive symptoms and you are faced with guardianship, it's, it's okay to go down that road as well if if you're there. Yeah. Now, the other thing too, and this is also an important distinction because I do an awful lot with revocable living trusts, again, as a way to avoid probate or during life, guardianship is something we call living probate. 
-hmm. where you have to report all those finances. Well, look, if you've got finances and you're putting it into a revocable living trust, you're naming your trustees. Those assets don't become part of that guardianship. And I've worked with enough families where their person is setting up the trust has HD and there is that kind of cognitive shift. They can become wildly irresponsible, but they wouldn't technically be incompetent under the law. So we put very specific triggering language for what it would take to remove them as the trustee from their own trust threshold in the law, acknowledging, hey, this is something that happens. And if a doctor just didn't know anything about HD, just examine them, they'd say, oh, yeah, they're legally competent. But we don't want them in charge of the money at that point. Mm -hmm. So I've had clients, they, they met that threshold and they were able to step in as the trustee and take over the finances, even though they weren't, quote, legally incompetent and not able to do it themselves, there was that acknowledgement that it's not the best thing for them to handle it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that was going to go back to another question where I had, like, if you, so let's say this, uh, you know, this family, this couple, like, this individual went ahead and, you know, they did everything right in the beginning and they, they've planned it out and they have their documents um, and you start to have somebody who becomes, is starting to become symptomatic, is, is starting to have um, impulsivity, is starting to mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of paranoia. Um, so you're experiencing some of these, the mental health aspect of HD popping in and going, you know, I, I maybe, you know, in this mode, like I need to go ahead and change my, my information and change my documents. And they may change, want to change it to, you know, the person who's there temporarily or in that moment, you navigate a situation like that. So I know that gets well, very... Yeah. If they Stupid. have that, if there's that language in there that they're removed as their own trustee, and yet they still have the capacity to change their other documents. Okay, if they're removed as the trustee and now it's, quote, permanent, mm -hmm. everything in the trust is now off the table in terms of finances. So if most of your assets are in the trust, yeah, they can go and change their power of attorney. Yeah, they can go and change their healthcare power of attorney. But the greatest part of the funds are now in the hands of the trustee that they picked when they were in much more of a right state of mind to make those kind of decisions. I go a little forward really quick. Does that mm -hmm. play a role too when it comes to living will? So, it, you know, if somebody has a living will set up, but then, um, you know, and they have very strict guidelines as to how they want things to go, but later on they change their mind and they're capable, you know, I guess of making that decision, are they still able to do it? Yeah, they're still able to change their minds on those things. And now let me talk. There's a legal and a practical. Now, the living will, it's technically North Carolina calls it a declaration of a desire for a natural death. And they have the old form, which is really the one that I still use. 
It's just that question regarding life support and artificial nutrition. If you're terminal and incurable, you're in a persistent vegetative state. And I always put in that two attending physicians have to make that determination, meaning two doctors have to actually examine you, not one doctor who turns their notes over to another and says, here, sign here. Two, they have to examine you. Then that's it. That decision's made. There's the new living will, which has, okay, you can choose this, and we have this for this situation and whatnot. And I've always kind of seen that as being more inflexible and really something that you want your healthcare power of attorney agent to take over and make those decisions. Uh, so the living will, once it's in place, it's in place. But if you come out and say, forget it, I don't want it anymore, keep me hooked up to the machines as long as possible. Now we get to the practical part of that answer, which is no doctor, if you can communicate that you want to stay off, you know, stay on the life support, they will keep you on it because they don't want a lawsuit. So living will or not, if there's that indication, they're going to err on the side of keeping you alive. So. Yes, you Very can change your mind on that. And in the within the state of North Carolina, um, and I'm assuming some other states, they have the living will or form similar to it. That trumps the healthcare power of attorney. Is that correct? Yes, because it's a very specific type of thing. Now, the way North Carolina does it is, I believe it's the way most states do it. You're making your decision ahead of time. There are some states that have a living will but they specifically name a person who has to sign off on withdrawing the life support and artificial nutrition. And back in law school, I went to law school in New York. That was what it was. You had your healthcare power of attorney, but you also named someone who could withdraw the life support. And unfortunately, one of my really good friends in undergrad uh, it was her father that went through this at the time, just after we both ended up graduating from different law schools. He named his wife to be his health care power of attorney, but he knew there was no way that she would pull, pull the plug. And he picked my friend instead to do that. So, yeah, she made the logical reasoned choice with everything input, even though it was her father. And when the time came, she signed the paperwork to have him let go. Does it make sense sometimes for families to, you know, not always choose the same person for healthcare power of attorney and finances? Absolutely. You know, I try to keep estate planning easy for my clients and I tell them what the complicated stuff is for me to figure out. Mm -hmm. But really, you've only got to answer four big questions. And the first is, who do you trust to handle financial things for you? And I lay out a scenario and I'm typically saying, look, it's really, really, really preferred if you name one person and then a backup and then a third. And I hear all the time, oh, can I just make all three of my kids co-trustees or co-powers? No, bad idea, bad idea. But then the second question is, who do you want making these healthcare decisions for you? That's really a completely different set of skills and background and potentially a different kind of empathy and knowledge. Yeah, that's definitely, there are a lot of times when my clients pick different people for those two things. Okay, I got another question for you that's not on here. Okay, um, <laughs> go ahead. Um, 
if you have guardianship of somebody, once that person passes, that guardianship is no longer in place, right? Correct. So what happens, like, does that go over to the power of attorney or does it go, like, how does that work after somebody passes? Okay, guardianship, if you call it living probate, on the financial end, that, that's really what I'm talking about. On the financial end, you're reporting to the court, you're keeping track of everything and you're accounting everything. You're gonna have to do a final accounting and then it goes over to the administrator or the executor of the estate. Okay. So now they have to pick up and it's it's a different probate proceeding because now it's in the estates division. Right. So there's that handoff. Power of attorney, that ends when a person passes on for both healthcare and financial. It's just no longer in existence. And I've had clients come to me initially. Yeah, I'm trying to fit, you know, wrap up my father's estate. He passed on. I went to the bank and gave them the power of attorney and they told me I couldn't. And they said, just go get this thing called letters testamentary. Can you type that up for me? Like, whoa, whoa wait a minute. That's starting a whole probate process. Point is that power of attorney is done when someone passes on. So if you don't have somebody chosen for after you pass away for as the executor of the estate, what happens? Mm -hmm. Well, then your closest next of kin gets priority, but anybody can go in and apply to be the administrator of the estate. So, so it's really important to establish an executor of your estate no matter what you have, right? Um, yeah. If you're going to do case. that, that's in the last will and testament. Here's the executor. So anything that ends up in probate, they're in charge of, they take it through the process. Got it. So that makes complete sense. Like, you know, even if this individual doesn't have, you know, assets, they don't have like all of these things, they might have just a little bit what's left to their name or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're wanting somebody specific to be able to manage that or to be able to divvy that up their chair their you know what like yeah. you're going to want somebody that you trust and that's going to be a will is yeah. that correct yes um if somebody does have um let's say they don't have many assets they don't have a lot to their name they have they're 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 definitely lower income and they're going to be looking at placement. Is that something that they would need to go to a Medicaid attorney for? Or is that something that they just go up to their Medicaid office and? Well, okay. First thing, don't ever go to the Medicaid office for answers. The Medicaid caseworker is not your friend. Mm. Don't do it because this is what's going to happen. And they go, oh yeah, well, I went down there for my mother and that's exactly what they did. You're going down to quote, ask questions to say, okay, we'll just fill out this form. All right. You start filling out the form and okay. It's, there's a lot of stuff about what assets you have, which is what they look at. They go, okay, sign there at the bottom. Okay. And, and they take the paper and they go, your application has been denied. What application? That thing right there, you signed an application. We, we were just trying to get answers. You told us to fill out this form. No, your application has been denied. And now suddenly, here's this rejected application on file. It becomes 10 times harder 
to go back and apply for Medicaid with the genuine application, even if everything that you did to move stuff around and reclassify and put money here or change it to this thing, even if it's all above board, you've got a lot more scrutiny. And so you're, when you, if you come to me, it's like, yeah, I have a rejected Medicaid application. Now it's 10 times as difficult for me. And everything is looked at and scrutinized as opposed to if you came to me in the first place and we moved assets around and changed things. So that's in general for just the Medicaid application. Uh, I had another client, well, she called up and I referred her to a colleague of mine, uh, a non-attorney who was still able to help out. They had done everything they thought they were supposed to do and they could have saved so much more, but they spent everything down and it was really an aunt and her niece was the person who was her power of attorney. And the house needed repairs and all this other, well, they didn't do that. They spent the money on her care, just like Medicaid told her, but she's allowed to keep a primary residence up to a certain equity limit. That's a, I, I couldn't tell you what it is right offhand, but it's, it's a pretty high amount now. Uh, back then, I think it was hovering somewhere around half a million dollars and it was definitely under that. So you can keep that and get Medicaid. The caseworker called up the niece as soon as Medicaid started to kick in and pay because they spent everything else down and said, oh, how's your aunt doing? Well, she has good days and bad days. Oh, okay. Do you think she's ever going home? Oh, no, I don't think she's ever going home. Three days later, she gets a letter in the mail that Medicaid is turned off until they sell the house because the, the aunt's not going to go home. You always have to have an intent to return home, but it's a subjective intent. She specifically called that niece to try to trick her into saying she won't be home or won't be going home so they could make her now sell the house. Uh, my colleague straightened that out for her pretty quickly, but that's, again, just showing the Medicaid caseworker, they're, they're working for the government. Now, they're going to process the applications, they're going to follow the law, but they're also going to get advancements and promotions and other stuff if they can save money. So you really want someone who's on your side. Now, if there's someone who really is that destitute, they, they, have, they have nothing. They have less than $2,000 in a checking account and there's that need and they are otherwise qualified for it. Then it's just a matter of filling out the application the right way and making sure that there's supporting documentation. So I again, I work with a team of people on that, and uh, that same colleague is kind of the uh, application and paperwork factory. He's got people who can handle it and get everything put together so that I guess something like ninety five percent of the time the application is approved first time around because they know what they're going to be looking for. That's, that is very, very good to know. Um, as I think we, you know, we hope um, people are working in the best interest of people. Um, mm -hmm. But that's obviously not always the case. And um, when you have somebody like an attorney like yourself or somebody within the Medicaid um, legal aspect of it um, 
it sounds like it's better to have somebody in your corner than not, especially even if it is, you know, there is property, if there is a house, there is Mm -hmm. some excess and, you know, there's some savings accounts. There's some of, you know, it sounds like having a conversation is definitely worth it instead of just going in blind. Absolutely. And there's a lot of materials out there uh, that will go over stuff. You definitely don't want to take the advice of your brother-in-law's neighbor's barista whose mom went through this and they said they did this and everything turned out. No, no, no. You really want to make sure you're doing your research. Now, if with, with the nature of HD, if you're immediately moving into planning and you've got those assets, there's a lot that can be done because there's a five-year window. You might've heard of the five-year look back period. It applies to gifts. So, all right, here's the most basic setup. We call it the two trust solution, even though there's more trusts really involved. There's an irrevocable property trust and an irrevocable family trust. For the property trust, you put the real estate into the property trust. And you keep the right to whatever income is there or the right to live on the property. That's really more of a tax thing after you're gone for the beneficiaries and the heirs. And then the family trust is where you put all the money that you're trying to preserve. And then five years after you move all that stuff into those trusts, it's off Medicaid's radar. And while that sounds great and wonderful, and why isn't everybody doing this? It's because when you put those into the trust, you're no longer the trustee. Somebody else has to be in charge and it can't be a spouse. It can't be, uh, yeah, it can't be your spouse. It's gotta be someone else. And so you have to be comfortable giving up control of your own assets at that point in order to start that five-year clock by putting assets into the trust. Does that mean if they're not willing to do that or if they don't have five years? They only have a couple of months before that skilled level of care is going to be needed, that there's nothing that can be done. No, it doesn't mean that, but it does mean you need to be a little bit more creative. Now, this is a solution, and it worked out so well uh, that I tell this and give this as an example of, quote, last minute, even though it was really a couple of months. And this was for uh, a mom who had dementia, but it was kind of early stages and they really didn't know how long it was going to be until she needed that next level of care. And she was fortunate enough between her pension, her deceased husband's pension, social security, that they were really only pulling about $6,000 a year to pay for that level of care that she needed. She didn't need any help with getting dressed or toileting or eating or any of those activities of daily living but you couldn't let her walk outside because she would get lost, she would get hurt. So it was that short-term memory and the confusion. That's why she needed to be in the environment she was in. All right, well, what did she have in terms of assets? She had about $340,000 in a checking account because she sold the house when she went into the facility. So that was being invested for. And the only other really big thing other than the couple of thousand that they kept in the checking account for her Uh, she had this life insurance policy. Now, this was an important thing because this was was the inheritance for the kids. When she died, it would pay out $400,000, but it had a cash value in the account of $60,000. 
Medicaid would look at that as $60,000. So total, she had $400,000 of assets. If you went down to the Medicaid office or called them, they'd say, go spend $398,000 and then come back to us. Wait a minute. She's allowed to have a primary residence or part of one. And if just in case, if this is in the video and someone's outside of North Carolina, this may not work in your state because some states have different rules. Her daughter, who was the power of attorney and son-in-law, had a house worth half a million dollars, paid off. Well, wait a minute. Mom can buy 80% of the house. And now on the deed could be 80% mom, 10% daughter, 10% son-in-law, the three of them owning them in those percentages as joint with the right of survivorship. So when mom passes on, the house goes back to the kids. All right, well, she didn't want to just get rid of the life insurance because she would have gotten 60,000 out, but she wanted that 400,000 to go to the kids when she passed on. So what do we do? Because you can't really just make that part of the contract. The son-in-law had $60,000 and bought the policy for exactly $60,000. So now he owns the policy. Mom has 400,000 in cash, had the contract, did the deed. They bought, she bought into the house. Well, now mom has her house, but the daughter and the son-in-law have $400,000. And they're like, well, okay, this is really, it's our money because she bought into our house, but morally we're looking at this as if it's mom's money. So they took it and moved it into the irrevocable family trust. There's no five-year look back period because mom wasn't the one who put it in the trust. The daughter and the son-in-law did. Mm. Okay, so now there's 400,000 in this trust. What's the first transaction they did? They bought the policy from the son-in-law back and moved it into the trust. So within a couple of months, we filtered through the biggest bulk of her assets. And she met that asset test now for Medicaid. Now, medically, she never actually reached that skilled level of care, but we could have had the asset test met immediately if she needed that level of care. So there are some things that you can do, quote, last minute, but with a couple of months time to avoid having to pay those large bills on your own and qualify for Medicaid, but you really do have to be creative with the way you do it. Is is there, um, I find that fascinating and I'm so glad you told us about that because I would yeah. have never known. Um, yeah. <laughs> but is there a, an age limit for the person who runs the um, the trust? Well, okay. Technically, they've got to be 18. They've got to be a legal adult. The vast majority of my clients wouldn't want to put an 18-year-old in charge of several hundred thousand dollars of money. If they're that young, more often they're going to like their own siblings or even friends and cousins that are a little bit older. Um, in fact, for just in estate planning in general, my clients are typically picking an age of inheritance of 40 with the understanding that the if they're gone, the trustee can judge that beneficiary's maturity level and they can always give them the inheritance early. 
40 tends to be the age that most of my clients universally agree. Look, if you haven't gotten your act together by the time you're 40, you're not going to. So holding it back doesn't do anything. Just go ahead and give it to them. It's going to go. Yeah. All right. Makes sense. So we have some who have financial difficulties when it comes to if they are seeking out Medicaid, there may be not many funds. Um, Mm -hmm. Is this something that is just, I mean, it's recommended like saving or are there resources that people can go to, to at least maybe do a consultation and kind of see if this is something that they really do need to be a little bit more creative and if it's worth um, kind of coming up with funds to hire an attorney for this. Okay. What I typically do, there is a charge for a quote strategy session. If within 15 minutes of that quote hour and a half, I'm like, okay, there's nothing that I can really do. Or it's so simple. Here are two things you just need to do. Okay. Usually I'm just letting that go, but even then in a couple of hundred dollars, it, if it could help you save a few thousand, great. Okay. Um, but we do have materials that we ask our clients to read or go through and a pretty detailed questionnaire. And it's, it's really detailed on the financial end because that means so much when it comes to Medicaid in particular. Once we've got that information, we're able to uh, really see pretty quickly, is there something we can do? or not. And sometimes that may very well just be, all right, well, okay, you, you told me you've got some of these medical bills. Those medical bills are going to be there whether you spend the money on something else or not. So you might as well spend it on that. So there's that debt isn't there. Uh, you're allowed to have a vehicle, but right now you're really driving around a car that's old in need of a lot of repair. Well, if you're going to be driven around in a car for appointments and other stuff and someone else is going to do the driving well why not get a good vehicle and then that that might take care of it so that'll help you quote spend it down in a reasonable way again you go to the medicaid office they'll just tell you to keep spending it on your care Um, another case i had it it was really a father and son and it was for mom and i said okay look Here's what you need to do. This is what it would cost for us to put together the plan, but I think we're going to be able to save you about 80 to 90% of what what you've got here. I heard from them about 16, 17 months later. They didn't, you know, they want to come with me. Okay, that's fine. I get it. But they went down to the Medicaid office. Not only did they have dad spend down most of his assets when he didn't need to. They kept mom's IRA in place. When she had medical bills, the Medicaid caseworkers suggested taking out a line of credit against the house to pay those medical bills. And then they were coming to me because, well, the Medicaid caseworker said that you could do an immediate annuity with an IRA. Yeah, but it's mom's IRA. The money goes to mom. The way Medicaid works at a nursing home is your income goes to the facility first and then Medicaid picks up the difference. So not only did they lose everything, they went into debt 
because they went to the Medicaid caseworker for the quote free plan. Yeah. Yeah. So it's common. It's such a common thing. Yeah. 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 I think, think, I think you're, you're really driving home. Like, you know, this is no matter, like, this is incredibly important. This is future. This is future income. This is yeah. it. You know, whatever little income that you feel is little, it's like, there is still an opportunity to, to possibly save, to be creative, to do something different, to plan for your family um, and plan for yourself going forward. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's, it's, that's important to, to bring to the forefront. Cause I think it is, yeah. you know, even myself, I mean, I, I catch myself where it's like, you know, let's talk to the Medicaid office and let's yeah. you know try to go that route. And I think it's, it's just bringing home the fact now that that, is not a safe place to go to necessarily. Yeah. Like I'm, they're, yeah. is, they're not at such they're bad there. experiences with the Medicaid office when dealing with dad that I refuse to go because at no point have they ever helped us um, with, yeah. with what we needed help with. So um, it, this is a bit of a validation, like mm-hmm. to, to hear some of this because um, realizing that it wasn't just in my head that they weren't helping. It, it truly is that they weren't helping. Um, but it definitely has um, caused this bad feeling towards Medicaid um, yeah. workers and, and what yeah. they're doing. I also want to make look, look on the other side that there are some Medicaid caseworkers. Mm-hmm. They are actually really sure. good people. Yeah. Mm-hmm they will go out of their way to do things and help you get like documentation and stuff like that. And they genuinely care, but the rules don't let them help you save money. Right. Their job is to help you spend all of your money in order to qualify because they want as much as possible to not have the government pick up the tab. I also think it's interesting too that it's different for every county, right? Like there are certain counties that are able to help more versus other counties that don't have as much money towards Medicaid. I'm guessing is it goes back to finances. I'm not sure. But- yeah, well, it, it also, it's who's in charge of that office and who did they hire? Gotcha. You know, it, it, I, see, I see this in probate a lot. Several years ago, uh, probate, was taking forever for some of my clients. And it's like, what happened? Well, the clerk who was running everything efficiently ended up running for office and becoming the district attorney. And then the next person who got in, they did okay, but then they lost the next election. And the new person was like, just not up to speed and everything fell behind. And then two years later, there was another election and a lot of the staff from the estates division ended up taking other politically appointed jobs. And then COVID hit and some people said, I'm going to retire earlier. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And they had to completely restack. That was happening in Wayne County. There were other counties where stuff like that wasn't happening and they were able to maintain and keep everything going. So county by county, it's not that there are different rules or budgets or laws. It's the personnel. Like most things, it's the people behind it 
that may or may not be getting things done the right way or may not be getting it done in a timely manner. Now, there's one point I really want to make. In the United States of America, we're never going to say we're just not going to provide help. But for expensive stuff like Medicaid qualification, they will keep making the rules and the exceptions more complex so that they can say politically, oh, people don't need to go broke. They can still keep their house. Yeah, but if you don't set it up the right way, Medicaid can make you make your state sell the house and take the money back. Oh, well, you can qualify even if you've got these types of assets. Yeah, but nobody's helping them get through those two, two or three steps in order to get there. That's where not just attorneys, but I'm a certified Medicaid planner, and that's a program that uh, certifies people to help with all of this Medicaid planning for attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and even social workers. You just have to go through a test. Now, I'm just going to put this as an interjection. If you want to cut it from the video, it's it was the first time, and this was about nine years ago, that I became a certified Medicaid planner. It was the first exam since junior year of high school where I couldn't use a calculator and had to do long division by hand with a pencil. But I passed it. That was part <laughs> of the exam to become a certified Medicaid planner. And so, okay, yeah, I had to do long division without a calculator. So it's not just attorneys. There are other professionals who are certified Medicaid planners who can help with this process as well. Do you deal with a lot of people who, as, as they're in that process of pending disability and, and pending Medicaid and all of that stuff, that they end up having to file for bankruptcy? Um, or have you seen a lot of that um, just to survive? like wait times and, and things like that? Or are you able to really just help with avoiding that? I haven't had any clients go bankrupt in, in that benefit waiting period. But then again, once we've got the strategy set up, I have other people that I'm working with who are handling the applications. It's gotcha. possible that that happened. Uh, but usually if you're at that point where you need that level of care, especially when it comes to stuff like Medicaid, it's usually about a two-month process. You get denied. Okay, that's a whole other matter. I know that you have special needs planning on your site. Mm -hmm. um, I have started to... Um, uh, dive a little bit more into just for the, the juvenile Huntington's disease families. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, uh, that's a, for those watching, it's a, it's a, it's a earlier um, version of Huntington's disease that impacts children. It can impact in their teens and their twenties. It's an earlier age and it can become, it can be a more rapid form. Um, but you have parents, you may, you, you would have a, an, an affected parent. So you have somebody who has HD who passed the gene down and it expanded into this shorter version. So you have a parent who is, has an HD diagnosis, then you have a child who is looking to um, live 
most of the time less than the actual impacted parent. So you have one parent who's caregiving and trying to work through Medicaid. And I guess what would you kind of take a look at that situation and what would be some of your first steps that you would recommend um, to go, this is what you really need to go to this attorney for and start talking about this kind of trust, start, start talking about these kinds of forms to get in place um, so that there is some asset protection and yet still being able to utilize Medicaid services. Okay. It really, you're, the big thing is looking at first the parent that's going to need that type of care. Mm -hmm. And do we need to get them qualified for Medicaid? And if we do that and assets can get shifted around into those irrevocable trusts, when you're talking about now the child as a potential beneficiary, there's no age 40, it's no, it's locked up for their lifetime in the hands of the trustee with complete discretion. That's what keeps any type of potential inheritance down the road from being counted on the child's balance sheet. So I, do, I have worked with families where the parents may be okay, but it's an adult child that's starting to, that got diagnosed and they're starting to, how can I make sure that I'm protecting it? If anything happens to us, I don't want my child to just be cut out, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I want to make sure that it doesn't have to get spent down on care. I want whatever's left to go down to the grandkids. Very, very common desire and common goal. Well, you now start with, okay, they're going to do a revocable living trust. If they're going to leave it to their child, we may set up a separate, what we call an asset management trust. So there's someone else as the trustee. They're the beneficiary, but they can't demand money. It always has to be the trustee who will pay or not pay. And if they're paying for something, they're paying it for it directly. And then for whatever gets inherited, if that child passes on, then it goes down to the grandkids. And we just put, I call it, a, it's a safety valve. We have that safety information in there in case something happens and one of the grandkids are also potentially disabled, it will lock it up for their life. And if not, okay, it gets distributed at age 40. So there's a way to plan ahead for this. If it's the family that's coming to me, the parents of the person who has the HD or potentially, and they need to protect things, we can work with just about anything. It's if you've got assets that need to be protected, we need to make sure we're doing it the right way. Thank you. Thank you. I know that was a, that was a, a bit of a, it's a very real family unit that it's a very real story that happens across the world with those who have uh, HD in their family, mm -hmm. juvenile form as well. And it's very complex and complicated, but um, it, it sounds like there are ways to be able to navigate these waters and do them a little less stressful where it's an already stressful and heartbreaking situation. 
having somebody like yourself or, or you know, an attorney to be able to, to, to wade through that with you. Um, sounds like probably the best option to, to really take it into consideration. You know, it's, I hate to say it like this, but it's, it's kind of like a game. And you have to know the rules of the game in order to win. And a lot of what, when it comes to Medicaid, Medicaid is just banking on the fact that most people are going to start looking at the rules, say, this is too complicated, throw up their hands and just spend down everything. There are ways to do it, but that's why there are professionals like me who can take that creativity, find those loopholes and come up with strategies. Like I mentioned with mom buying 80% of the daughter and son-in-law's house and filtering the money through and saving it. That, that shows the creativity, like the, the creativeness that you can really, because I, I never, I mean, the, some of these stories, I'm like sitting here like, wow, like I would never have, as, as a human, you know, social worker, but a regular human being going, I never would have thought about that. You mm-hmm. know, the, the, the creativeness and the, 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 the different ways that you can kind of bend some of these, some of these pathways for people yeah. to really end up saving to protecting and, um, you know, saving more than what they probably thought they could save for the future. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for just being here and, and, and talking with us. Cause I think this is all such important information. Um, and I, I have like probably one last question before Lauren, if you have any sure. more, um, if, uh, you have a non-HD parent, so you have somebody who is does not have HD and they have, they might have, you know, two children or three children that carry the genes. So they -hmm. will um, at some point have HD. They want to make sure that they can put them in the will and give them their home or whatever assets they have Mm -hmm. so that they have these children are supported and taken care of. Now, is that recommended? Like would that impact Medicaid? Would that more of kind of looking at a irrevocable trust or yeah well okay it it really does depend on how much you want to support the three kids separately or is it all at once and if the big thing is the home if you start with the revocable living trust as the base of the estate plan and then just where does it need to go well, it can't go to them directly. So either we can set up something within the revocable trust in the terms, or like I mentioned, those asset management trusts that are irrevocable, the assets can go in there. And often if it's okay, if it's three kids, they may not all end up with children of their own, but they could. And okay, they want whatever's left to go to the grandchildren. A third goes into one asset management trust. If that child passes on, okay, it goes to that child's children, meaning that set of grandchildren. If there aren't any, then it goes to the other two asset management trusts and so on. So even if it's just one kid has one grandchild, eventually it's all there for that one grandchild. But filtering through the trust so none of the three kids actually get direct control, which is what Medicaid looks at in terms of do you have control of this asset? And if so, you have to spend it down. 
That's great to know. I think sometimes, you know, you, you want to, you want to take care of your family and that's the, that's what you have internal. You want to take care of your family. And uh, if you are a parent, um, sometimes that can be um, a, a knee jerk reaction to, yeah. you know, I want to give them my home. I want to give them everything if I were to pass or take care of them. Um, but knowing how to do that correctly so that it also does not hurt them in the long run when it comes to services. Yeah. yeah. They don't need ownership of the house. They just need to be able to live in it. They don't actually need money. They need the things that money can buy, goods or services. Mm -hmm. And your trustee can always make sure they're getting what they need without having to put the money in their pocket. Well, I just want to say I appreciate this so much. Um, it's been extremely helpful to to hear this. And I love that you are educating on these things because um, you know, even those of us who think that we know stuff, there's so more to learn. Um, so this has been extremely helpful, not only for me personally, but I think you know, the HD community is going to find it extremely helpful to know these things. Um, so thank you so much for sharing what you have. Um, I've certainly taken away action items um, for myself. So, you know, first first thing first, um, you know, take care of the power of attorneys yeah. um, and, and get that taken care of an executor of estate, right? Mm -hmm. That's huge because you want it to be somebody that you trust. But really, I just think the Medicaid planning portion of this is so huge because we're all going to have to face something in relation to Medicaid, Medicare, um, as we go through a process of disability. So mm -hmm. um, this information is just vital to, to keep us going at the level we need to be. Okay. Well, I do have some free resources that are online. Uh, it's not specifically for HD, but just in general for Medicaid planning. I've got two uh, kind of ongoing automatic webinars uh, there's medicaidplanningwebinar.com. <laughs> love that. Nice and easy, Medicaid Planning Webinar. And payforlongtermcare.com. So That's both a huge of those, one too. Yeah, both of those are ongoing webinars where, okay, you just put in your name and your email address and it takes you right into the webinar and there are other resources and things that are in there. And I do have a YouTube channel. So, uh, lots of different topics that come up. I've been doing it for quite a while now. It's, if you could just go to youtube.com forward slash NC lawyer, as in North Carolina lawyer, that'll take you right to my channel, which is the plain English attorney. This webinar has helped so much. And like, I've seen how many videos that you have on your site and just on your YouTube channel. And it's just so incredibly, um, I'm just appreciative, you know, as a social worker, but as a family member, um, as somebody who can, you know, is going to utilize a lot of your videos. So I thank you for, for putting that kind of information out for everyone to access. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, Erica and, and Lauren. I appreciate the opportunity to just get the word out. The more information we can get out there, the more people we can help.